and, uh, and we'll pray before we read. So Psalm 36, if you want to turn those pages while we pray, that's perfectly fine with the Lord. So let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you and praise you so much for your word. Lord, we pray that we would look to your word for truth, Lord, uh, that, that anything that your spirit would lead us to do would agree with your word, Lord, that, that that would be something that we are constantly seeking out in our lives, Lord, your truth and your word, and then seeking your, your leading and guiding from your truth. Lord, we pray that you would, uh, you would open our ears to hear it. Lord, please uh, let these words ring true in our lives, Lord. Um, I'm sure they apply to each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, in your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There are evil do- there are there the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you're glad to be in church today, say amen. 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 All right. It's going to be lively in here today. My wife and I, I kid you not, as she was uh, cleaning the kitchen floor yesterday, we were listening to a sermon by Martin Luther King Jr. And man, was it going in that place back in 1967 as we uh, listened to that message yesterday. I'm going to refer to it uh, later. Now, I want to also welcome uh, everyone here today. I don't normally especially identify someone, but uh, I just want to say, hey, Brother Keith back there, I'm so happy you're here today. Uh, Keith uh, recently has professed faith in the Lord. We had a memorial service here yesterday for uh, his dad, and it just means a lot to me that, that Keith is here. But I want to welcome all of you as well. Well, anyone who uh, gets to know me knows uh, that I love the mountains, I love the high Sierra, I love the mid Sierra, I love the low Sierra. (laughs) If I travel to other places, like we did recently to Hawaii, I don't just stay at the beach, I'm I'm in the mountains. I love the mountains. I see the grandeur of God, the beauty of God. Uh, They are uh, are pointers uh, to him 
uh, for me. Jake just read uh, this psalm, Psalm 36, 6, says, Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. The righteousness of our God, His purity, His awesomeness is compared to these mountains. And they, they point me to Him. I haven't traveled uh, to Europe yet or uh, to France, but if I go there, uh, Paris is way down the list. The French Alps are, are at the top for me. Uh, I could go to France and, and miss uh, Paris. Is that true, those of you that have been there? Can I, can I miss them? But I'm going to hit the French Alps. Well, today, in our passage, we're going to get there in a few minutes, uh, Moses goes up on the mountain. The, uh, the Israelites have, have found their way out of bondage, uh, out of Egypt. He has led them to the mountain. Uh, it, it is an awesome passage that we're going to look at. Uh, so, of course, I'm thinking about where is this mountain, even before we get into uh, the passage. And uh, to my surprise, uh, in modern-day Egypt, did you know that? Where Mount Sinai is, we don't know 100% for sure, but is uh, in the Sinai Peninsula. That makes sense that Mount Sinai would be there. We're not exactly sure which peak it is, but most people think it's right where that red dot is, uh, referred to in uh, Egyptian or Arabic as Gabal Musa, uh, Mount Moses. It's just ironic to me as we're journeying through the book of Exodus that I learned this week that the mountain is in Egypt, in modern-day Egypt. Modern Israel has tried to take that land, the Sinai Peninsula, over the last 50 years a couple times, and that hasn't, hasn't worked out. At the bottom of the uh, mountain, there is a monastery there, St. Catherine's Monastery. It's been there since 565 in continuous operation. Anybody been there? Have you guys, did you guys go? Have you guys been to that area? It's not a frequently traveled to uh, area, this Sinai Peninsula. But you can see uh, the travelers here, the hikers that would pilgrimage up today to the top of what almost certainly is Mount Sinai. Interestingly, up on the top of that peak, uh, there is a chapel, a Greek Orthodox chapel. And another uh, ironic thing up there is there is a mosque up on top of Mount Sinai. Is that crazy? So we've got a mosque on the Temple Mount, and we've got a mosque up on top of Mount Sinai. So those of you that are hoping for a a message on eschatology and, and borders and all that, we're not going there today, but, uh, but that's just crazy to me uh, that there's a mosque up there. Well, we have gathered today uh, to worship God, not just to look at mountains or to talk about mountains, to look at pictures of them, but to hear from him uh, and his word. Before we again get into the chapter, just as way of, of introduction, a couple things that commentators have said about this chapter. Uh, Matthew Henry writes this, says, this chapter introduces the solemnity of the giving of the law upon Mount Sinai. The giving of the law is going to come in the next few weeks, the Ten Commandments, and and on and on. Uh, Today, we're just coming up to that point. Again, this chapter introduces the solemnity of the giving of the law upon Mount Sinai, which was one of the most striking appearances of the divine glory that ever was in this lower world. Uh, Riken writes this, What the Israelites witnessed that day, the day we're about to look at, 
was one of the most awesomely terrifying displays of divine power that anyone has ever experienced. All the forces and powers of nature slammed against the mountainside. Lightning, thunder, darkness, smoke, fire, and earthquake. And so what I want us to see out of this chapter, what I want us to see, you've already seen the title of my message today, Why God is Not the Man Upstairs. Now, the man upstairs is probably my least favorite way to describe God. I see one head nodding. Can I get any more or an amen? This is not a good way to to describe our God. We're going to see in this passage that, that he is not just some anything like some some guy upstairs he he is awesome and he's powerful and he demands things of us and the kind of person that uses this phrase the man upstairs is someone probably a very normal person this is a normal phrase for americans to use to describe god they're, they're theists, Americans, that would use this phrase to describe God, the man upstairs. They're not atheists. They believe in God. But I want to suggest that they don't know anything about the God of the Bible, the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, the God that puts demands and restrictions and expectations and shakes this mountain. We're going to look at what he does. Let's bow our heads once again before we get into this chapter today. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the word of God. We thank you, God, that as awesome and mighty and powerful and majestic as you are, that you love us, that you've shown your grace and mercy to us. And as we've already covered in the confession that we are even forgiven. Lord, I believe that every one of us here, our eyes need to be opened wider to your holiness to your power, to the demands that you put on us. And so I pray that would happen today as we look at your word. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Exodus 19. If you're not there, go ahead and turn there. Um, Exodus chapter 19. We're going to get through this whole chapter. So uh, if you uh, don't have a Bible with you, grab a Bible in the chairs in front of you or pass one to a neighbor. You'll be able to track with me a lot better if you've got your Bible out and open. All right, let's begin here, um, verses 1 and 2 of 19. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai, after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of of the mountain. Now, as it turns out, they're going to remain. Uh, they're going to remain in this desert of Sinai area for eleven months. Uh, they have come out of Egypt. They have come to this mountain that God has prophesied to Moses all the way back in chapter three that this day was going to come, that nineteen was going to come, Exodus three twelve. And he said, the Lord says to Moses, certainly I will be with you and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. And here they are. 
this huge nation and, and, and multitudes of people. Verse 3, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I love this description in verse 3. This is what you are to say, the way he describes this people, this chosen people, this kingdom of priests. Uh, He describes them with these humble beginnings from this house of Jacob. This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what, and, and what you are to tell the people of Israel, this, this nation, this people that I'm calling out of the world. You've seen what I've done, he says to them. This, this imagery of, of eagle's wings, uh, of an eagle uh, catching uh, their young as they fall, as the Israelites do and as you and I do, we fall and we stumble. Uh, do we not? Do we fall? Do we stumble? Anybody stumbled this week? Anybody got some tough news this week? We serve a God who cares for us as an eagle would come and gather those, uh, gather those young uh, before they would hit, hit the bottom. And then the second imagery here in the same verse in verse 5, he says, and brought you to myself. So we've got this eagle imagery and now we really have bride, bridegroom imagery here. I have brought you to myself. This is powerful. We have a covenant that's about to be made, the law that is about to be given in the coming weeks as we continue our journey through this book. But look at verse 5. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Notice in verse 5 that there's a conditional aspect to this covenant. Going all the way back to Abraham, there's an unconditional promise that that my descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars, as the sand. But there's also a conditional aspect in verse 5. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, if you do that, The reality is throughout all of of salvation history, uh, God's people, uh, if we are to uh, the enjoyment and the personal participation of a relationship with God has always been on an individual level. He's calling a people, but he's also saying you need to fully obey me if you're going to participate in this covenant. You can't be slack. You need to, in a sense, have a longing to obey me completely. None of us obey completely. But what he's looking for in you and me and what he's looking at in the Israelites are those who would have a longing to obey him. It's conditional, your participation in that. Verse 7. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. It's a good response. That is a good response for us to have. We will do everything the Lord has said. They're united in their hearts. They are, they are eager to obey. They are, they, are, they are ready to follow Moses. 
and their God. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord, this good answer. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you, you singular, Moses, in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking. So they will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. So one of the first things I want us to notice from this passage is that God is holy and he requires a mediator. God is holy and he requires a mediator. Did you see who the mediator is here? Who is the mediator here? The mediator is Moses. Moses is the go-between. Moses is the go-between between the people and God. God is not just some guy upstairs. He is holy. And people who understand His holiness will tremble before Him. And we can't just, just saunter into His presence. We need a mediator. We're going to see more of this mediation as we go through this chapter. Moses is the mediator. There's a problem, though, with Moses. He's not a great mediator in many ways. He's like you. He's like me. He's a sinner. In fact, if we fast forward all the way to Deuteronomy 32, he doesn't even get in the land. The mediator doesn't get in the land because of his disobedience, because of his sin. Stuff going on with the water. It might seem silly to us. It's not silly to God. He's not the man upstairs. The one he's called, Moses, this great and awesome man, he doesn't even get in. So we need a better mediator. And we have a better mediator, don't we? We have a better mediator than Moses. Are you thankful that you live this side of the cross, church? Are you thankful? 1 Timothy uh, 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Moses was a mediator with a small m. But there was coming a mediator who wasn't going to be left to die outside the promised land just seeing it. There's a mediator who's coming who's going to conquer sin, who's going to be raised from the dead, whose righteousness is like the mighty mountains. He never stumbled. And the only reason that we can go directly into the presence of God, holy God, is because of Jesus, the superior mediator. Hebrews 8 and verse 6, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, the Israelites, the Old Covenant, as the covenant of which He is a mediator is superior to the Old One. And it is founded on better promises. It's not founded on promises of land flowing with milk and honey. It's founded on promises of eternal life, the new heavens and the new earth, with sins forgiven, and people from every tribe and tongue and nation all over the planet gathering together forever and ever, worshiping the King. Those are the promises of the new covenant. 
The promises that begin with the gospel. Leon Morris writes this. He says, but the author's point, the author of Hebrews, verse we just looked at, his point is that Jesus' ministry is of, uncompar- is of incomparably greater dignity and worth than Moses'. 